Thank you very much. And as I said last week, thank you for those who have braved the elements. Uh, it was an interesting time after last week's lecture. I was supposed to go down to London for a meeting on Friday, and I was going to travel on Thursday. In fact, I only just made it back home to Fife, and when I made it, this is what I saw. Um, this is the road down from our house towards the village. I couldn't even walk it, let alone drive it. I thought you might enjoy that. Some of you I know have had similar things up here. I'm not saying it was any worse in Fife than in Aberdeen, but um, it's been an interesting time. So I had a quite different weekend from what I imagined. So to a different road and a different story. Uh, you are so senseless, says Jesus, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You are so slow in your hearts to believe all the things that the prophets said to you. Don't you see this is what had to happen? And that's, of course, the turning point in one of the best-loved biblical stories. It sums up the theological perspective, not only of Luke, but of all the early Christians. I know some people have suggested that Luke was out on a limb here while Paul saw the backstory as irrelevant. But no, a strong case can be made for seeing Luke's point in the whole New Testament and the mind and message of Jesus himself, not least. And these lectures are, in a sense, doing nothing other than draw out what this passage implies and applying it to larger issues like God and the world and the modes of knowing which enable us to speak wisely and truthfully about God and the world, about natural theology, in fact. What, after all, is natural theology? You might be glad that now in the seventh lecture I'm finally asking that question. Is it the attempt to provide a neutral argument acceptable to all without presuppositions? Or is it the attempt to sketch from a Christian point of view what such an apparently neutral argument might look like? Or might it be a Christian account reading backwards, like Jesus retelling Israel's story on the road, to show how the natural world had in fact been pointing, however brokenly, to the truth. It might try to be all of these, but it's the last that I think has the most coherence, and that's what I'm going to be attempting tonight. But what is natural theology for, anyway? I think Lord Gifford was hoping to scare up lines of thought that would glue together the new things the world was finding out and the old things the church was supposed to be teaching. It was no good the church claiming divine inspiration for its texts and traditions. That merely pulled up the battered old drawbridge across Lessing's ugly ditch, which the Epicureans hadn't wanted to cross in any case. So there was an apologetic case to be made, if not that Christianity was true, at least that it was not unreasonable. And there was also an explanatory case, more for internal consumption, showing that new discoveries might sit alongside, might sit well alongside, and even might illustrate traditional teaching. Well, that's all very well, but I want to argue a different and paradoxical point. I've argued so far in these lectures that modern theology and exegesis have been shaped by the Epicurean split of heaven and earth, and by the post-Renaissance chronological split between past, present, and future, and by understandings of human nature that have been shaped by those two. 
And I've proposed an alternative perspective, rooted in Israel's traditions, seeing the temple as the microcosmos, disclosing God's ultimate purposes for the heaven-earth world, and the Sabbath as the advanced foretaste of the age to come, and humans as constituted by the image-bearing vocation. And all these are then reshaped around Jesus and the Spirit, but the new shape still proposes an integrated cosmos, an inaugurated new creation, and a vocational anthropology. Those three topics are in fact reflected in the three broad approaches to natural theology over the last 300 years. As for instance, in Paley's famous natural theology of 1802, cosmology, teleology, and the human moral sense. Now, you might imagine that in preparing these lectures, I started with those three and then went to find Jewish symbols to correspond. But in fact, it was the other way around. But this unforeseen convergence draws attention to an important preliminary point. The homology between creation and temple, which we looked at a week ago, was not designed to enable the Israelites to look at creation and infer the existence of a temple. It was the other way around. The homology between Sabbath and the age to come was not designed so that the Israelites could look at the age to come and figure out that they ought to be keeping the Sabbath. It was the other way around. One might even suppose that Psalm 19, which moves from the all-penetrating heat of the sun to the all-penetrating wisdom of Torah, was itself written from the standpoint of one who already knew the latter and was using the former to illustrate it. In other words, I don't think the psalmist had been contemplating the sun and deducing Torah it too was the other way around. This would then correspond not to a supposedly apologetic task of natural theology, trying to convince the skeptic without appealing to inspiration, but to the supposedly explanatory task, drawing out ways to hold together the truth of God and the truth of the world. But what about the so-called moral argument which has tried to build on the idea of human beings made in God's image? Immanuel Kant argued in the Critique of Practical Reason, 1788, that, quoting in English, the highest good in the world is only possible insofar as the supreme cause of nature is assumed, which has a causality corresponding to the moral disposition, end of quote. He could also use teleological or cosmological arguments, but Kant believed, as a recent commentator has put it, that the inherently moral capacity of the human mind offered the strongest proof of God's existence, end of quote. This was then rejected by skeptics like John Stuart Mill on the grounds of evil and suffering in the world, the long aftershock, if you like, of the Lisbon earthquake. And by theologians like James McCosh, who were suspicious of Kant's moral intuitionism, it's all a bit too fuzzy, and preferred, like Paley, the more rational arguments from cosmology and teleology. That's where we rejoin my earlier story from two weeks ago, or three weeks ago even, with the First World War then confirming Mill's skepticism 
and with Schweitzer and the early Barth rejecting the Hegelian progress theology of Ritual or Harnack. And this is where the well-known question of a so-called point of contact between God and humans, is there something in humans which provides a link, a point of contact to the divine? That's been foregrounded in much discussion, however misleading that way of putting it turns out to be. Now, as with my overall critique of the Kantian tradition, he says grandly, I haven't actually offered you such a thing, but it's been implicit in what I've been doing. I believe that the moral argument has got out of focus. I've argued elsewhere in my book, The Day the Revolution Began, that the platonic eschatology of Western Christianity, souls going to heaven, has generated a moralistic anthropology, my problem is simply sin, which has then produced a paganized soteriology, God so hated the world that he killed Jesus. So that in order to retrieve the biblical theology of the cross, we need to unpick and rework each stage, not merely the final one, the anthropology and also the eschatology. I got a phone call from my daughter in Bristol who had heard what difficulties I'd had getting back home and getting stuck in the road and so on. She said, so dad, I suppose you're now doing eschatology rather than eschatology. It's a good line. But the problem comes particularly, the problem with Kant, not with the snowy road, when anthropology is reduced from vocation to ethics, from calling to behavior. Now, of course, behavior matters. I'm sometimes accused of not caring about sin or not seeing sin as a power. Totally wrong. The primary vocation to love God and neighbor must constantly be encoded in motives, decisions, and actions. And idolatry hands over our human powers to whatever it is we worship. But to be an image bearer is more than just behavior. Otherwise, we put the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God. Indeed, the moral version of the natural theological argument might be thought to be running that risk ab initio. The moral sense which Kant intuited, from which he thought to derive God as the ultimately moral being, is only part of a larger whole. And I propose, therefore, that we avoid the traps of the older construals of the image in terms of the human imagination or even moral sense. I start from my earlier argument that the image has to do primarily with vocation. This already, actually, I think, draws the sting of any suspected methodological works righteousness because a calling presupposes a caller. I offer here seven aspects of the human vocation. These do not form an exact replacement for Kant's moral theory. I suggest that they straighten it out giving it a full-bodied sense of possibility, which Kant's theory lacked. So, seven vocational signposts. There are seven features of human life which can be observed across different societies and times. I name these vocations, though they are often present as inarticulate aspirations and impulsions. We know them in our bones, as we say. The seven are a rather odd assortment. I use loose labels for them, which provide enough to take the argument forward. I'm not trying to give you a, a microscopic analysis of how they work. 
but they take us to the heart of the traditional questions about natural theology, even though what we then find at the heart may well be unexpected. The seven are justice, beauty, freedom, truth, and power, spirituality, and relationships. Very different sorts of things, but still. Notice our modern word religion doesn't get near most of that. Spirituality, yes. That may be why most people in our world today leave what we call religion well alone. But the point about all seven, to put it crudely, is that we all know they matter, but we all have trouble with them. Take justice. We all know some things are fair and some are not. Children know this without ever having studied moral philosophy. When a country signs a treaty and then breaks it, we know it matters. If people think a criminal has got away with a ridiculously light sentence, the hunger for justice may lead to vigilantism. Yet we are all prepared to bend or even ignore justice when it suits us. A good lawyer may get you off, however guilty you are. Countries with muscle force unjust trade deals on weaker partners. I wrote that a week or two ago, by the way. People say there's no justice as a complaint against the system. There ought to be justice. Unless, of course, like Machiavelli, you accept the Epicurean premise and know that this is just a game and you better learn how to play it. But philosophically, never mind theologically, that is a counsel of despair. Here is the paradox. How can something we all know matters so much be so hard to attain? The same paradox occurs with beauty. Whether it's a sunset or a symphony, the smile of a child or a bunch of spring flowers, beauty makes us more alive. We know it matters. If you live in a prison cell or the corporate prison cells of the brutalist buildings in old Eastern Europe, the stripping away of beauty is dehumanizing. But as with justice, even when we celebrate and relish beauty, it doesn't last. The sunset fades. The smiling child becomes a bitter adult. The flowers wither. The music stops. The darkness closes in, making us wonder if what we thought was delight was a random evolutionary quirk, a vestige of ancestral needs, or whether, still worse, Sartre was right and the whole thing is a sick joke at our expense. We are drawn to beauty as to a magnet, but it disappears like a mirage. Why? You could say the same about freedom. You see how this argument is going at the moment. We all know freedom matters. We all want it for ourselves and those for whom we care, but it's surprisingly difficult to define or defend, to get or to keep. One person's freedom often comes at the cost of another person's slavery. Does it have to be a zero-sum game? Is our instinct for freedom merely a delusion? Rousseau's version of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, man is born free but is everywhere in chains, catches the paradox, and quarter of a millennium after Rousseau, we're still no closer to solving it. Or take truth. The Enlightenment boast of objectivity has been deconstructed by the postmodern claim that truth claims are power claims in disguise. But like people drinking poisoned water, we may suspect it's bad for us, but we're still thirsty. We still want the truth. We don't want to be surrounded by liars or to live in a hall of distorting mirrors. So 
anxious with good reason about fraud. We want more paperwork for everything, more modernist truth markers to stave off postmodern suspicion. Like dropping bombs on terrorists, that just makes matters worse. We need truth. We were made to tell truth, but we live in a world of lies and we often add to them ourselves. And all this leads to power. Power has been a dirty word in some circles, particularly since Nietzsche, on the one hand, claims to knowledge or claims to power, and since Lord Acton, on the other. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we can't do without it. Reformers and visionaries, realizing that evil thrives when people do nothing, have grabbed the levers of power only to discover that either they don't work or they work backwards. Nor is anarchy the answer, it just opens the door to unscrupulous bullies. Nor is violence the answer. If you fight fire with fire, it's always fire that wins. We image bearers know we are supposed to exercise God's wise rule in the world, not that unbelievers would see it like that, but we regularly make matters worse when we try. Now, these first five, justice, beauty, freedom, truth, and power, I suggest that we see them all as vocations. They include moral intuition, but they go well beyond. They aren't just about our behavior. They are about the difference that we're supposed to be making in the world. The last two take us into a different register. Spirituality and relationship are slippery words, but we need to say something. Spirituality, secularism, of course, tried to rubbish spirituality, but the secular dam has now broken and forms of spirituality have flooded back. Many things, whether it's Dan Brown's fashionable Gnosticism or Ouija boards or forms of pantheistic mysticism, these are trying to bridge the gap left by the secular Epicureanism, borrowing bits and pieces from low-grade Platonism or Stoicism to pad it all out. And people who go that route sometimes proudly declare that they have found some kind of religion, as though from a secular standing start, this would put them on the same map as Christians. But Christians too have a problem with spirituality. We have often conceived of Christian spirituality in terms of us somehow making our way to God or to heaven, Whereas the Jewish and early Christian worldview focused on the promise that God will come and has come and will come again to dwell with us. So new forms of spirituality often let us down. And even when we embrace the incarnational gospel, there are dark nights of the soul when it all goes blank. Yet another paradox. And finally, relationships. Again, it's a slippery word, deliberately actually. Because my point is not that there is something called love which we can analyze accurately and then ascribe to God. We love, so there must be a God of love. But rather, more generally, that all of us know we are made for relationships of one sort or another. We are all formed for good or ill by those relationships, whether supportive or abusive, whether healthy or unhealthy. And often the abusive and unhealthy relationships are the ones to which we return like an addict. But here then is the paradox. Wolfhard Pannenberg argued a generation ago that humans are exocentric creatures, by which he meant that we become the people we are through the relationships that we have outside of ourselves. And yet, 
we mess up those relationships and are messed up by them. And the very best still end in death itself. Now these seven I see as signposts. As they stand, they are broken signposts. They promise much, but apparently fail to deliver. One might, of course, try to argue from them all up to some kind of natural theology. You could suggest that the passion for justice and the love of beauty makes sense within a world which God has promised to put right, a world which he will fill with his glory. Our longing for freedom could be said to resonate with Scripture's Exodus theme. There you are. We could rightly say that the Creator God is the God of truth, of reality, who calls his human beings, his human creatures as image bearers, to be truth tellers, so that his wise order may come through wise human words into his world. You could point out that human puzzles about power might reflect the constant biblical theme of God's power. The human quest for spirituality in all forms points to Augustine's line that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Finally, our need for multi-leveled relationships might be seen as a window onto the pluriform interrelationships within the Trinitarian Godhead and on our ultimate vocation to love God and our neighbor. And from all this, as a kind of refreshed version of Kant's moral argument, we might hope to argue our way up to God, perhaps even to the Father of Messiah Jesus. And working out from there, we might then hope to incorporate some version of the cosmological or teleological arguments. Our own creativity might be seen as a mirror of the Creator's own intentions, and our own hopes and goals, our own telos, might reflect the sense of ultimate purpose built in, into the world we know. We might think all that, but we would be walking out on a frozen lake with no guarantee that the ice would hold. One can imagine Richard Dawkins, in his usual response to a post-Paley natural theology, dismissing it all as projection. Your God is rather like you, only bigger. Throw in some Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, and the ice cracks. However deeply rooted these vocations may appear to be, they may just be means transferred across cultures and time. And that's not all. Deeper than the cynic's sneer is our own analysis that we have failed individually and corporately. We have turned justice into oppression, beauty into keech, freedom into license, truth into fake news, power into bullying. We have sought self-gratifying spiritualities. We have made the calling to relationships the excuse for exploitation. And all of these, from a Christian point of view, have the word idolatry hanging over them. And it gets worse. Even when we haven't got it wrong, when we have done justice and loved beauty and given and sustained freedom and told the truth and exercised power with wise restraint, sought the true God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves, why then entropy kicks in? This is John Stuart Mill's answer to Kant. However much you puff up the human moral capacity, and in my version, however much you emphasize vocational qualities common to all humans, still events in the world, from Lisbon to Auschwitz and beyond, 
events in our hearts and lives, and the harsh fact that we die and life seems a cruel joke. They all suggest that any new version of the moral argument will fail the test of theodicy. The moral argument, even in my new form, falls through the ice and drowns. The seven vocations, then, are at best broken signposts. They appear to be pointing somewhere, but they lead into the dark or over a cliff or round in circles to where we began. Were they just wraiths, the ghosts of our own imaginings? Were they just random impulses in a late developed evolutionary pattern? Were they, after all, the wrong questions to ask? Should we simply have capitulated to the cool Epicurean cynicism? Yes, we feel these things, but they don't really mean anything. And we should silence such irrelevant voices and pursue the placid pleasures available to us here and now? Or should we smile an early Bartian smile and say, well, there you are. Nothing good was ever going to come from all that. So can these seven vocational imperatives play any role as pointers to the reality or character of God? I think they can. But only if we move the argument forward in an unexpected way. Our discovery that the apparently promising signposts were broken takes us back to where this lecture began, with Jesus' teasing rebuke to the two on the road to Emmaus. You are so senseless. This is how it had to happen. What was going on? Richard Hayes has reminded us that the early Christians read Israel's scriptures backwards. They didn't start with the Bible, figure out an identical portrait of a Messiah, and discover Jesus of Nazareth. They had plenty of scripture-based messianic portraits. Jesus didn't look like any of them. But notice what Jesus does not do. He does not say, oh, why were you bothering with those scriptures? They just led you into trouble, into wrong views of God and salvation. Throw them away and trust me for the brand new thing that I'm offering. No, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, says Luke. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here is the truth which cuts across the different philosophical and theological movements that have tried to do natural theology on the one hand and historical studies of Jesus and the Gospels on the other. When you look back from the resurrection of the crucified one to the hopes and aspirations of Israel, and, as I shall now argue, to the seven vocational signposts we have briefly noted, you do not see a void. You see a broken, desolate story limping along, faint but pursuing, stumbling into the ditch here and there, taking wrong turnings, grabbing at false solutions, hanging on empty hopes, but still it comes in tears like the women at the tomb in sorrow like the two on the Emmaus Road. And behind that broken and bleeding story, we glimpse the narrative of Israel's vocation. Abraham's call and covenant, Moses' exodus and tabernacle, David and Solomon's victories and temple, the catastrophe of exile, and the long, dark promises of restoration. When you read backwards from cross and resurrection, you see muddle and failure and mistake but you also see divine promise and vocation 
to which Israel kept returning, however partially and fitfully. And you now see, in a way you couldn't before, that this was the right story to be telling that these were the right signals, if only you could have steered by them, that what Israel's God has now done has, as it were, retrospectively validated all that went before. The so-called apocalyptic rejection of any backstory, reflecting in would-be exegesis the Kierkegaardian and early Bartian rejection of Hegel, throws out the teapot with the tea leaves. Israel's story is the story of God's faithfulness. And as Paul rightly saw, the very brokenness of the story magnifies that faithfulness. To say otherwise lands you in the arms of Marcion, where you will find many friends, ancient and modern. Nor will you worry about natural theology there. Marcionites, like Gnostics, don't want to be told that the story of Israel having snapped in two like a dry twig nevertheless still pointed in the right direction. When you learn to read backwards, you will glimpse, like the father seeing his bedraggled son limping over the horizon, the story that got it all wrong and yet found its way home at last. So it is with the broken signposts that we have noted. By themselves, they do not point upwards to God, or if they seem to, they might simply be building a new tower of Babel. They can be deconstructed. They can be interpreted otherwise. And yet, at the very moment of their failure, they point to the ultimate broken signpost, which turns out to be the place in real life, in concrete history, where the living God is truly revealed and known and loved. Each of the signposts leads to the same place. The cry for justice is central to Israel's prayer life. The boast of justice was central to imperial Rome, but it didn't work. Everybody knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate washes his hands. His wife had nightmares about that just man. Beauty is elusive in the Bible. The mornings and evenings praise God, according to Psalm 65, because twilight invests everything with glory. But as Jesus dies, there is no twilight, only darkness. And in the morning, only horror. Jesus died at Passover time, freedom time, and the Romans stamped on freedom as only they knew how. Jesus explains to Pilate that truth-telling is what his kingdom does. What is truth? asks Pilate with a sneer. Empires make their own truth. Truth, the first casualty in war, is the final irony of the crucifixion. So too with power. Jesus had announced a new kind of power, but it seemed that the old kind had won after all. Spirituality, the dark night at noon gives its answer, my God, why did you abandon me? Relationships, Judas, Judas denies Jesus. Peter betrays him. The rest run away. He saved others. He can't save himself. When we stand at the foot of the cross, all seven signposts appear broken beyond repair. The gospel story confirms the cynic's view. There is no way up to God from there. But when we read backwards we discover that this was the point when the true God 
was revealed. If we thought that the human vocations would lead along a noble upward path to God, we were all along wanting, as perhaps Kant was wanting, to find the God of the omnis, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnicompetent deity, the celestial CEO of much Western imagination. And instead, the four Gospels tell us of the God who suffered the ultimate injustice, the God with no beauty that we should desire him, the incarnate God who was denied freedom, whose fresh truth was trumped by the empire's truth-making machine. The Messiah who healed by the power of love was crushed by the love of power. The one whose own rich spirituality bound him in intimate relationship to the Father found himself abandoned. Here then is the point. The early Christians all insist, not that the divine revelation took place before this in Jesus' public career or after it in the resurrection. Yes, both of those matter. John insists that Good Friday afternoon was the moment when they gazed upon his glory, glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Beware of a natural theology which discovers one of the other gods. There is an extraordinary poem by the First World War poet Edward Shillito called Jesus of the Scars, quite well known, whose final stanza says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Of course, none of this was apparent at the time. Nobody on Good Friday evening was saying, well, that was very unpleasant, but at least we have now seen God's glory. No, Jesus' followers were hiding in fear and shame and grief. But the resurrection compelled them to look back and retell the story so that not only Israel's broken story, but the broken signposts from the entire human world turned out, after all, precisely in their brokenness to be pointing to the ultimate broken signpost, the cross itself. So what kind of natural theology might now emerge as we read the signposts backwards in our investigation of human vocation? Six points as we move towards the preliminary conclusion which will then flow into the final lecture, God willing, on Wednesday. First, the early Christians made these signposts thematic for their own ongoing life. They looked back in the light of the new day whose dawn they had discerned, and they declared that God had established his justice in the world and would complete this task at Jesus' return. Their visions and poems, their common life and shared love radiated a beauty which turned into world-transforming art and music, poetry and drama. They embraced the freedom of the new exodus and lived in it. They spoke a lot about truth and through their words the truth of new creation spread into the world. And they spoke and acted with a healing restorative power they practiced a spirituality that could cope with the darkest night of the soul while open to rich, multi-layered experiences of the God in whose image they found themselves remade. And above all, in their rich relationships, they turned the ancient rumor of love into practical policy, caring for one another 
and for anyone their outstretched hands could reach. Now, all this was the common coin of early Christian life. The Enlightenment has done its best to rubbish church history, to see it as part of the problem. Stephen Pinker's new book is just all down the same line. And of course, the church has failed, sinned, hated, used violence, colluded with wickedness. But at the same time, the ordinary life of ordinary Jesus followers is still the principal way people are drawn to faith, as it always was, not least because those seven signposts have been mended or are being mended. In other words, when we look back from Easter and Pentecost to what happened before, when we look back at the seven broken signposts, we see with hindsight that those were the right questions to ask. The Epicurean cynicism of a Machiavelli or a Nietzsche is answered. The signposts may have been broken, but they were doing their best to tell the truth. You can't start with them and argue your way up to God's existence or character. But when you discern the dawn of new creation, you see that the signposts were telling something true, but they could only be seen through a glass darkly. They were not, in other words, simply the frantic ravings of random desires. The signposts were intending to point to a country where, astonishingly, we are now welcomed as citizens. It's the first point. And the second, <clears throat> we have a new angle on the so-called point of contact between God and the world. That phrase, as I said, is itself unfortunate. It suggests a mere tangential meeting, <clears throat> as though a sort of embarrassed thing uh, we've we got to touch at some point, but let's not make too much of a fuss about it. To be sure, if by point of contact we were thinking of an upward ladder, a progressive movement of mind or heart by which we might climb up to God, we find that the ladder has no rungs. Instead, the Gospels show us an event within the public world, the natural world, within the world of history, of humans, of politics, of power games, of kangaroo courts. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate true signpost to God, to God's work in the world, to God's purposes in the world, and indeed to God's ultimate dealing with evil in the world. The trail of broken signposts leads to the broken God on the cross. And this is no mere das, as in Bultmann, a bare fact. No, the cross planted in the solid ground of human history, in the natural world of blood and soil, is the signpost that simultaneously says no to all human pride and folly, and yes to all those vocational longings. The temple veil is torn. On the silent Sabbath of Holy Saturday, God lies buried in the heart of the earth. All four Gospels are telling us, in language more familiar to first century Jews than to third or thirteenth century theologians, that here heaven and earth overlapped entirely. If natural theology then is looking for a God other than the one nailed to the cross, it is looking, however accidentally, for an idol. And needs to be reminded that our knowledge of God is the reflex of God's knowledge of us, and that this is to be energized by love. 
The cross of Jesus belongs totally within the natural world, the world indeed of nature red in tooth and claw, including human nature, where George Orwell's terrible image of a boot stamping on a human face forever summed up the way the world was. But when we look at this event from the angles we have now explored, we can say with quiet and grateful confidence that here the living God is truly revealed. When we look at the cross and when we see there the failed hopes and despairing cries of history, we discover the deepest truth that the meeting point is not where humans raise themselves up on tiptoe and God stretches down for a brief moment. The cross is where the downward spiral of human despair meets the love that was always at the heart of creation. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. That, I think, is why, even to the cynical and doubting, paintings and other depictions of the cross retain a pre-articulate and sub-rational power which the theologian can bring to rational articulation. That's why hard-boiled atheists still turn out to hear Bach's St. Matthew Passion. The music itself functions as a kind of natural theology. I give a couple of examples of this at the start of my book, The Day the Revolution Began. One of which is when Neil McGregor, when he was director of the National Gallery, put on that Seeing Salvation exhibition for the millennium. It was mostly old paintings of the crucifixion, other stuff as well, but mostly that. The press rubbished it. Who wants to see all this miserable old stuff? The, the public happily ignored the press, came in their droves again and again. Something was going on. The, the art of the cross spoke. Or then a favourite old story about a former Cardinal Archbishop of Paris who told the story himself and told about two boys, three boys, young Jewish boys, hard-boiled young sinners, who decided to confess their sins to a priest in a church. And they confessed all sorts of things and made them up. And the first two ran away laughing. The third one confessed his made-up sins. And the priest realised what was going on and said, OK, I'm giving you a penance. I want you to go up to that figure up the other end of the church, pointing to a great crucifix hanging there. I want you to look at that figure. I want to say, you did all that for me, and I don't give a damn. And I want you to say it three times. And the boy went up. It's a bit of a joke. First time, you did all that for me. I don't give it. Did it the same. Then he couldn't do it the third time. He left the church changed. And the archbishop telling the story said, the reason I know that story is that I was that young man. It's on the record, Google it. The cross does the job, pre-articulate, pre-rational, it gets through. And I think we can see why. So third, the perspective I've offered provides a fresh way back into a cosmological argument. Paley famously spoke of a watch and an implied watchmaker. We might want to speak of new creation, of discerning the dawn, see, in terms of seeing a broken watch repaired and telling the new time demanded by the new world which had been born. Because like the French revolutionaries restarting the calendar, that wasn't just a whim. The events concerning Jesus have fixed the watch and set it to new time. If Jesus is the true temple, we can begin to explore afresh the homology between him and the cosmos. 
But the power of the argument will then depend on the extent to which the new time makes sense in the lives of puzzled onlookers. That points to the next lecture. Fourth, the same is true of the teleological argument. It isn't just that we can look at organisms and hypothesize a goal towards which they're tending. The resurrection validates retrospectively those hints of forward-looking deductions. If Jesus has inaugurated the great Sabbath, we can think differently about pathways and goals. And part of the point, as we might have guessed from Psalm 72 and elsewhere, is that the ultimate telos, the goal of all creation, can now be realized. We glimpse the future secured and assured, and we realize that the signposts, broken as they were, were nonetheless telling the truth. Fifth, as I hinted a moment ago, the focus on the cross addresses the question of theodicy in a fresh way. Ever since the Lisbon earthquake, the so-called problem of evil has been split off from atonement theology, as though the cross, which is central to the latter, was irrelevant to the former. I have suggested that a vocational version of the moral argument for natural theology brings us back, after all, to the cross. It is time for those two questions to be reunited. The three basic questions of natural theology, God's action in the world, arguments for God from within the world, and the problem of evil, return to and are reshaped by the cross itself. And sixth and finally, we return once more to epistemology. If, as I explained in the last lecture, it is love that believes the resurrection, it is love itself, in Christian terms, the love of God poured into our hearts, that enables us to see the larger picture as well. Love, in believing in the resurrection, discovers with it that the signs of the Creator's presence in the old creation really were true pointers to the new. Love is the mode of knowing which includes, though it transcends all others. And with this we note a particular twist. When we look back at the broken story and the broken signposts, and at those who have struggled and puzzled to make sense of it all, we remind ourselves, as most pastors know, that grief, too, is a form of love and so shares its epistemological possibility. Mary Magdalene saw the angel and then the risen Jesus through her tears. Those who have loved justice and beauty and freedom and all the rest and have grieved over their denial have had all along true knowledge of the true God who gave us these vocations. The Platonic tradition would have downgraded this to, at best, true belief rather than knowledge. I think we should upgrade it again and not merely conceding the adjective justified, true belief. No, this is a form of knowledge. Blessed are those who mourn, said Jesus, they shall be comforted. I think that works with epistemology too. So to my conclusion, I have implicitly rejected the working assumption behind some attempts at natural theology, that from within a Faustian world, one could, by reason alone, storm the heights and reach the citadel. That, of course, is what Karl Barth was reacting against famously in the 1930s, a natural theology achieved with force and power that would sustain a political system based on force and power. Instead, I am suggesting a natural theology of weakness 
corresponding to Paul's theology of weakness in 2 Corinthians. Bart's alternative, a revelation vertically from above, was itself potentially problematic with its implication of powerful preaching from a high pulpit. Paul's apostolic preaching was framed by apostolic weakness, embodying the gospel in apostolic suffering. The natural theology which is revealed when we read backwards to the cross and thence to the broken signposts can never be a rationalist's triumphalism. It is known by love, and love must be its modus operandi. And that is why the early Christian new creational eschatology rooted in history must issue in the flesh and blood missio dei, the mission of God. That's part of the argument. The signposts must come to life afresh. When we fight for justice and stand up for the oppressed, we are knowing God, making him known, demonstrating by the Spirit God's passion for justice. When we delight in beauty and create more of it, God the glad creator is displayed. When we cherish freedom and share it, when we speak truly, especially when we speak new creation into being by articulating fresh truth, the God of Genesis and Exodus is present and celebrated and known. When we exercise power humbly and wisely and hold to account those who do otherwise, we are living out publicly the power of the cross. When we worship and pray, and above all, when we enter into wise and self-giving and fruitful relationships, we are knowing and honoring the God of creation and making him known. There will be grief in this. There will be love in this. There will thus be knowledge in this. We will be engaged in the true image-bearing natural theology. Those who discern the dawn must awaken the world. Such an image-bearing mission, shaped by temple cosmology and Sabbath eschatology, now refocused on Jesus, will be oriented towards the ultimate goal, when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Natural theology has sometimes tried to gain that goal without going through the dark valley. But when the epistemology of love gives birth to the missiology of love, even the broken signposts will laugh and sing for joy. And that points us to the final lecture. <laughs>